Salutations from space, folks. This is Gemini Brett, celestial navigator of more than astrology. And it's my great honor to be sitting with Paul Levy, author of Dispelling Watigo, Breaking the Curse of Evil, along with other books. And author of All That Ever Was, Is, and Will Be, As Are You and I. And we are about to dive into those mysteries together. Paul, how in the heavens are you? Oh, I'm I'm great. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here with you, so thank you. Thank you so much for opening your home to me and, and for sharing your words and heart with us today. I thought I'd begin, there's so many places I can, because the synchronicities of your writing and my own experience and what this project is about are just profound. <laughs> um, but I thought I would begin with a paragraph from Dispelling Watigo, and that reads... Recognizing the mysterious, synchronistic correlation between what is occurring in the world and what is happening within our own minds empowers us to become dynamic, transformative agents in our world. As soon as we realize that the world is steeped in our projections, our relationship to our world begins to change radically, and we no longer unconsciously react to our projections as they appear in the world, imagining them to exist objectively as separate from ourselves. By consciously recognizing ourselves in the world, we become enabled to work and play with our projections in a way that serves us instead of allowing our projections to play with our minds. Mm-hmm. I love that, and I love that it's on page 77, because when I kind of describe this project to you, we'll get into the magic of that number. Um, but you speak about this, um, about kind of awakening into the dreamlike nature of our world. It seems to be the, the main current of your work in general. I was wondering if you could bring us into that. Sure. Well, keep in mind that this book came out of my own experience that I began having um, in the early 80s, where I was recognizing that um, we were having a mass shared dream, that this, this world, this life that we all are having, it's as if, um, you know, I mean, it's a collective dream. And um, so with my work in Dispelling Watiko, I point out again and again, there's many different ways as I can imagine that this, that this world is dreamlike in its nature and that's not any even though it sounds really kind of like this radical point of view it's very steeped in any wisdom tradition um will creatively articulate the same idea and um and it's also what quantum physics is pointing at more and more the physicists are discovering oh my god um physics the quantum physics actually is the physics of the dream and um, so one of the things about a dream is that, well, it's, it's a reflection, it's a projection of the mind. And when we're in a dream, and I'm talking at night, and we don't have the recognition of the nature of our situation, we actually react to the forms of the dream as if they're separate from ourselves, as if they objectively exist. And... Um, and that actually is the very process where we're actually um, creating karma, you could say, but also 
it's like we're we're staying. It's like we're a kitten looking in a mirror, seeing her reflection, which is just her own energy, but then reacting to the reflection as if it's something other than ourselves, which then just the reflection in the the actual the surface of the mirror just will reflect that back or reacting to it. So then it becomes an infinitely self-perpetuating feedback loop where we actually are imprisoning ourselves by the creative power of our own mind. And so um, what I'm actually pointing at is that to the extent that we think, and it's really like a thinking process, that the this world actually exists in an objective fashion separate from ourselves, that's the extent that we've fallen under the spell of our own mind and we've become, in a sense, under self-deception. And, um, and that can go on for our entire, for our, not only this lifetime, but for a number of lifetimes. And, and that perspective of actually thinking or having an imagination that the world is separate from ourselves and then reacting to it as if it is separate from ourselves it will then, being that a dream is just a reflection, and I keep on talking about this being dreamlike, if we treat this, if we think this world is independent and objective, it will then, in no time whatsoever, reflect back the very point of view that we're entertaining. So then it will give us all the evidence that we need to support our perspective, oh, that it is objective, which then we become even more entrenched in that viewpoint. So we then even more see the world as separate and objective. And the more we see it that way, the more it proves to us that it really is that way in a feedback loop, which is generated by our own mind. And what I'm describing, that's what, in my book, I'm actually, that's what the Native American people call Watiko disease, or it's a psychosis. And the thing about Watiko it's a collective psychosis and our species, I mean, it's amazing to me that it's not, you know, front page headlines every day in all the media. The fact that our species has fallen into a collective psychosis of titanic proportions, from my point of view, is big news. And yet it's not even talked about because it's become like this, this thing that's normalized to the point, just like a fish in water, it doesn't notice the water, we're so completely steeped in this psychic epidemic called Watiko that most people don't even know about it, and it seems to be the normal way of things. And um, and it's at the bottom, like I point out in my book, um, it's at the bottom of really the, the real evil that we as a species are playing out on, on the greater in the greater body politic. It's at the bottom of it's like this this multidimensional disease where it informs the evil that we're playing out within our own selves, our self-destructive processes, our addictive processes, our habitual patterns. It informs, you know, the the shadowy stuff that we play out with each other on the interpersonal dimension and it's informing collectively what our species is playing out on the world stage and and it's all based on um, in a sense being entranced by the projective tendencies of our own mind and not recognizing 
that what we're actually reacting to is our mind's own energy. So that's a really simple way of describing the Watiko virus. So just as when we wake up from a night dream, it's easy for us to analyze all these characters that come to us and symbols as pieces of ourselves. The quest is to be able to do that as well here in the waking dream. And just as we can become lucid and actively participate in the night dream and become creators in that space to know that we are that here as well. Um, You touched upon this, but I love this in the book um, about how if we don't believe that we are creators and in a sense we're manifesting our reality through our projections, we're so good at doing that, then we will project a world where that is not true. And um, there's many Mm -hmm. really wonderful riddles to contemplate in this book. I I first came to it at the beginning of, I guess, what I would call my awakening experience. And the the pain and the aloneness in that experience, which is certainly not unique to myself, although the awakening is typically unique to each of us, isolation and um, separation seems to be a pretty common thread for everyone in that experience. But I was really coming into it and kind of pointing my fingers at all these dark forces and these controllers and us and them. And so your book brought to me a new perspective that's really allowed me to open into a new way of healing where I could take some responsibility for projecting this darkness and understand that it actually was a projection of my own darkness. Yeah, yeah, because what you're saying, you know, it makes me think... So the thing about Watiko, it's actually, it's a psychospiritual disease of the soul that's been with our species for, from time immemorial. And it operates through the um, unconscious, through the part of us. We all have, you know, blind spots. And it operates through our unconscious blind spots in such a way that we become, like I was saying, entranced by our projection. So in a sense, what he goes a form of this, this being blind, it's a psychic blindness, but it's a particular form of blindness where we actually people afflicted with it and we all have it. So I want to say one of the things about what is that it feeds off of polarization and separation. So if we're talking here and we, you know, talk about somebody out there is, Oh, they have what and we don't, well, us holding that perspective is an expression that we then, at that moment, have fallen under the spell of the bug. And um, so it's a form of, of, of this, this psychic blindness that believes not only that it's actually seeing clearly, but it believes it's seeing that we're seeing more clearly than anyone else. And so because it's a form of psychic blindness and it operates through our unconscious, we don't see it. And we just then become unwitting instruments to act it out in the world, in our lives. And that's why I talk about it's important to see it. And how to see it is, on the one hand, there are three ways, and they're all the same, but just different aspects of the same process. One way is to see this being a dream, to see the dream like nature. Just like when you have a dream at night and you wake up and you can contemplate the dream, oh, what is the meaning, what is the symbolism, what parts of myself are being embodied in all the different dream characters. Same thing with our waking life. We can view our waking life as if it's a dream. 
that's the first way. The second way is to see, oh, we actually, if this is a dream and we're dream characters in each other's dreams, so I'm a dream character in your dream, you're a dream character in my dream, whatever's happening, moment by moment, both of us, all seven billion of us are actually dreaming up into materialization, this universe, whatever is unfolding, the implication of that is that we're not separate. We're interconnected. We're interdependent. So first seeing the dreamlike nature, second seeing through the the separate self. And uh, it's not like you have to get rid of the separate self. You just have to see, oh, through that illusion and realize, oh, the truth is we're actually not separate. We're interconnected. And the third way is in physics they talk about... Um, the actual field, the non-local field. And the non-local field is, um, it's all pervasive and it transcends third dimensional space and time. So it doesn't play by the typical laws or rules of space and time. And in physics, you know, this idea of there being a field and that it's non-local is one of the major breakthroughs of the last century. And um, so when you begin to see that, you begin to see, oh, there's no separation in the universe, that each of the seemingly separate parts are actually not separate. They're actually interconnected and interdependent, and that includes all of us. And that's to see the dreamlike nature, and that's to begin to see the Watiko disease. And you begin to realize, oh it actually is playing out not only out in the world through people who aren't seeing it and then it acts itself out. They become unwitting agents, you know, or instruments um, to to um, be its reps, mm-hmm. to embody it. But you realize it's actually acting itself out through our unconscious reactions to what we're seeing so like you were saying, if I'm seeing like somebody out there playing out evil and I'm like having a reaction to it and thinking that the evil is out there separate from me, well, that then I'm unwittingly feeding the Watiko disease that's in the field. And instead of being an agent of, you know, that can be of help, I'm actually just unwittingly being a conduit to propagate the disease. So what you were saying is really profound that when you see the darkness out there, there's such it's there's such a propensity to polarize and you know because oh it's what a I feel so much better now I know where the evil is I'm just obviously good and the evil's out there well that itself is you know a real fingerprint of Watiko yeah and you speak about how Watiko likes to hide in the shadows um, so many it would seem in the New Age movements. Um, are kind of light polarized and are ignoring the shadow at all costs, believing that if they focus there, they're creating the shadow and the way to avoid it altogether is, or the way to cure it is to avoid it altogether. But in a sense, that's giving permission to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Well, the thing about Watiko, it doesn't just hide in the shadows. It hides in the light, too. Mm -hmm. It hides everywhere. And it hides everywhere in between the shadows and the lights. And... um, so the idea is is that a lot of really well-intentioned people who are these, you know, spiritual people are like, "Oh, I don't want to I don't want to read a book about evil. I don't want to even think about it. I don't want to place my attention there because that's feeding it." And, you know, it's tricky because on one point of view that's true. 
like what we place our attention on, we're feeding in a certain way. But I point out by them having that perspective, which is actually having an avoidance of being in a relationship with a part of themselves, of their own darkness, by them doing that and, oh, I'm not going to look at that, they're actually unwittingly feeding evil by doing that. So here's the thing. If you like get too fascinated by evil and put too much attention on it, you're feeding it. But if you ignore it and, oh, I want to not give it my attention, I'm just going to avoid looking at it, then you're feeding it too. But there is a, a third possibility, and that is to see it and then to recognize, oh, I'm a sovereign being, and I see this darkness, I see its operations, its covert operations, I see how it is operating through the world, through the unconscious, through my unconscious, through me and my reactions, and now that I see it, being a sovereign being, I can choose where I place my attention. And that's not avoiding the evil. That's just being an autonomous, sovereign, independent being who is making a decision on how I want to place my awareness and my attention. And I could actually invest my attention in, in creating the actual the world that I want to live in. That is the point of view that actually... Then Watiko, think of it like a vampire then it can't feed off of us because then we're seeing it because just remember a vampire once in all the mythologies once the sun rises it loses its power which is symbolic that yeah when you see it you see that's why Watiko it operates through the unconscious through the shadows and it's incredibly invested in us not seeing it because when we see it when we see how it works I mean that's why my whole my whole work for my entire life is trying to get out and point out and draw maps of like, look, here it is. This is how it operates. Because when you see it, you take away its power and its autonomy while empowering yourself. Hmm. Now, but the thing which is also interesting under, you see, it's such, um, it's a really tricky thing because from the ultimate point of view, there's no such thing as Watiku. It doesn't even exist at all. It has no independent reality same thing like with that vampire. A vampire can't exist on its own side. It needs to feed off of somebody to have seeming existence. Well, the Watiko bug is, is a vampiric bug. It's like this parasite of the mind in the sense that it doesn't exist at all, ultimately. It has no intrinsic, independent, substantial existence whatsoever, and it can destroy our species. Yes. And, and, that's, and that's pointing at the incredible untapped power that we have inside of us, that to the extent it's unconscious, then we unwittingly, it'll, it'll get picked up by whatever it is seemingly out there that's really doesn't even exist, but it gets turned against us in a way that's killing us. So this disease of the soul, as you mentioned, is also, in a sense, the remedy because it's pointing to our awakening. And two things. Um, the first is that there is some sense that there is some use in objectifying and projecting this so we then can see it as a mirror of ourselves and then can go in and clean that up, right, and release ourselves as re regaining our spiritual sovereignty from that which we are creating within to be reflected in the That's world. That's so right on because, I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that, you know, I mean, when we're unconscious of something, 
we're identified with it. We can't see it. So the way that the unconscious, when you study the psyche, the way the unconscious becomes conscious is it, we, it projects itself out. And so it always approaches from us from the outside. I mean, that's just the way this process works. And so that being said, if you want to um, get in touch with this, you know, seeming entity, I don't even want to invest it with like that it's real. That's why I'm saying it's a seeming entity because subjectively we experience it as if it's an entity um, in the field or out there or in our mind. Um, it's incredibly helpful to give it form, to objectify it. Because then once we objectify it, if we still keep it as being separate and thinking, oh, now it's really out there and I'm just reacting to it, well, that doesn't serve anything. Mm. But if by objectifying it, we then have the recognition of, oh, and that's a reflection of that part of me. Now all of a sudden you have an image. You're in relationship with it instead of being absorbed by it or instead of being in this identified state with it. And, and the other thing you were saying, too, which is also really important, and I talk about this again and again in my book, is that encoded in the Watiko virus is its own medicine. So it's actually helping us to wake up. And that's profound because, um, you know, it's a quantum phenomena. It's like it has like this superposition of states in that Watiko is the greatest evil that can destroy our species and, and destroy the very life support of the planet, the biosphere. And encoded in the virus, it's actually helping us to, to recognize the dreamlike nature of reality. And it's very much like when I say it's a quantum phenomena, what I mean is, well, what, you know, what is the nature of, of light, for example? Is it a wave or a particle? Well, it depends how we observe it. You know, if we set up our experimental, like all of our apparatus to, to view the particle aspect, it'll manifest as a particle. Mm. If we, you know, set everything up to view it as a wave, it'll manifest as a wave. Just like with Watiko, how it manifests depends on how are we going to actually dream it. And if we don't recognize what it's, it's showing us something, it's showing us something that's profoundly important for us to understand and if we don't have the recognition of what it's showing us, then we're guaranteed to be acting it out unconsciously, which means in a destructive way. But if we have the recognition of what it's showing us, then it actually is helping us to become more acquainted with who we are as these creative and creator beings, where we're simultaneously being created by the universe, while at the same time, we're actually evoking and calling forth the very universe that's creating us. We're co-creating within, and this is just quantum physics. And um, so, yeah, the point is, is that encoded in 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 this in this virus of the mind is both the, the highest, um, the, you know, the deepest and darkest poison and toxin and evil, and the greatest medicine. And when we're ready to take that step and begin to peek through the veil, we tend to manifest darker and darker reflections of the shadow until it's just so close to our face that it can no longer be ignored. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, if you think about it, if in your dream at night or in your waking dream in your life, if there, or think about collectively what's happening in the, in the world, on the world stage right now, where there's more and more 
this incredible evil is coming out. It's like it's not hiding in the corners. It's not underground. It's just completely out. And, you know, I mean, the only people who aren't seeing it are ostriches, really, with their heads in the sand. But from the dreaming point of view, that's an expression that the light is really nearby. Mm. You know, because when there's shadow, shadows are the absence of light, but it's also the presence of light. It's a, it's a function or an expression of the presence of light. So the fact that um, there's so much darkness, and that happens but also individually to the extent that we are getting closer to discovering who we are, things seem to get worse, you know? And, um, you know, the darkness is coming up. And, and one way of understanding that is as we get closer to connecting with our light, you know, the darker forces will do everything and anything they can to stop us from really connecting with the light because when we connect with the light, the darker forces are out of business. And, and yeah, so that's really important to understand. That's why the greatest danger for people killing themselves, you know, is understood as like right before people are going to have breakthroughs. That's when the danger for mm. suicide goes way, mm. way up. It's like these darker forces are invested in us not seeing through them or not seeing the light not connecting with our light because then, you know, like I say, they're out of business and, um, you know, and so it's really important uh, to understand that. And that's also why, like I'm a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and in Buddhism, you know, one of the, the main supports for, you know, for deepening your whatever awakening or enlightenment or whatever is by being in connection, having community. And um, you discover, oh, that we're interdependent and interconnected and we can all help each other in our awakening process. That if I help, with, whether it's with you or somebody else, I get as much benefit as the other person because ultimately we're not separate. And that's why, um, you see, one of the dangers is to isolate in this day and age with all the, the darkness that's playing out. It's so easy to fragment which itself is an expression of the inner fragmentation of our mind. And, um, but, you know, the antidote to that, to, to that is to be having sangha, is the Buddhist word, the community, and, you know, where we all can help to reflect each other and to reflect each other's shadow and blind spots and awakening and, and light, too. And there's a way of being together. And this is what I do. I have all, all week, three, four nights a week, I have these groups of people who are actually awakening to the dreamlike nature. And we're just discovering there's a way of hanging out, which is the most absolutely this natural, organic way mm. of being together where we actually are helping each other to awaken. And, um, yeah, so that's, uh, you know... Now, the thing I want to say, too, just because I think it's important to understand when I talk about, oh, the way to see Watiko, for example, is to see this being a dream, to see the dreamlike nature. Well, if you're in a night dream, like I was saying, what is a night dream? But it's an actual reflection of the mind. And so that means that our inner process in the psyche is actually expressing itself through the forms of the seeming outer dream. So in a sense, the inner and the outer are, are like these mirrored reflections of each other. So you see the thing about Watiko, in a sense it's like so psychedelic because it's an inner disease of the soul that expresses itself through the medium of the outside world. So it, in, in a certain way, 
seems to extend itself out into the world and configure events in the world so as to in a synchronistic way express the internal state of us. And, And that's always happening. The question is, do we recognize that or not? And if we don't recognize that, then we're thinking, oh, the outer is out there, the inner is in here, there's a separation. But when we begin to to have that recognition and then to connect with other people who also are tuned into that, whether you call it the synchronistic awareness or symbolic awareness or dreamlike awareness, there are all these names for it. There's a field that gets conjured up where when you actually more see the, you know, see that correlation between the inner and the outer and and perceive the world with synchronistic eyes, the more being a dream, the more this universe will actually just reflect that back. And one way to understand that, which is like I think a really, really um, powerful way of understanding it, if I'm in a dream, if I'm in a night dream, for example, and I'm holding a particular perspective and being that the dream is nothing other than my own mind, whatever perspective I'm holding is instantaneously going to get reflected back. The dream is going to shapeshift and just reflect back all the evidence I need to confirm my viewpoint. And then, of course, now I have the evidence, like I was saying before, so then I become even more entrenched in my viewpoint. And then, you know, as soon as I become even more entrenched and the dream even more reflects back the truth of that viewpoint and that's the um, that's the feedback loop that's mind created where we actually entrance ourselves by our own creative like genius for evoking reality and um, you know and what I was just describing in the night dream that's the nature of our situation in the waking dream and um And just to sort of extend the metaphor a little bit, so imagine if you're in that night dream and you begin to recognize, oh, wow, this is a dream. What's happening in this seemingly outer environment is reflecting what's going on inside of me. And imagine if you connect with another dream character in that dream who also is waking up and having lucidity to that. And then imagine like a bunch of other people, a bunch of other dream characters in that dream who are all having that recognition wow, we're actually inhabiting a dream. And what's actually happening in this collective dream, you know, is just an actual expression of what's happening inside of all of us. What I imagine is that, oh, we can all put our insight and understanding together and change the dream we're having. And of course, I'm just describing, oh, that's a night dream, that's easy to imagine. But I'm saying that's the nature of our situation. That Watiko is actually, because it's showing us the dreamlike nature... As we more and more connect with other people who are recognizing that, and it's what I call we can conspire to co-inspire each other. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a real conspiracy theory. We can activate the, the genius, the collective genius, where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and we can actually change the waking dream we're having, and that's evolutionary. That, that's what this is all about. And that's why in the Castaneda books, you know, um, Carlos has his teacher, Don Juan, and Don Juan actually, he doesn't use the word Watiko, he has a different word for it, but he calls it, it's the topic of topics. Mm-hmm. It is the most important thing, there's nothing more important, and I, I concur wholeheartedly, there is nothing 
absolutely nothing more important than our species really um, bringing consciousness to whether you call it Watiko or they're all every wisdom tradition has a different name for it it doesn't make a difference what name you call it but how come I say it's the most important thing is because there's nothing else that'll matter we're we're clearly destroying ourselves as a species and I point out in my book well how come we're doing that I contemplate that and you know that it's not debate you can't really dispute what we're doing we're destroying the biosphere the life support system of the planet and I point out oh we're actually destroying ourselves as the very way to discover how to not destroy ourselves which we clearly don't know or we wouldn't be destroying ourselves you see so it's like that same thing that encoded in the pathology or in the symptom or in the actual disease is the is the blessing is the medicine and everything depends on if we have the recognition of what it's showing us. Right. We're destroying ourselves to learn how to not destroy ourselves. Right. <laughs> Where exactly. the lesson is you have the power to destroy yourself. You, yeah, you mentioned in your yeah. book this quote from Jung that a thing is only alive if it can destroy itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, a thing can only be a creator if it can also be a destroyer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, which that's is, one of my favorite quotes. Kind of the, the Shiva energy but there's so much here one i mean a personal experience of when the night dream and the waking dream blend i i had this dream a while ago and there was this man i met and he was teaching me this thing this mystical thing you know and i later saw him on the street i never met this man before and i came up to him we made eye contact and i said you're the teacher in my dream and he said it at the exact same time and it turns out the experience i had in my dream where he was teaching me this thing he had the same dream, but I was the one teaching him this. Oh, wow. And so right. it was spirit in some strange sense showing us that that communion, that morphogenic field, that, you know, yep. um, connectiveness. Um, so, you know, and we speak about quantum physics. What's interesting to me, and it's very much, um, as you're mentioning, that Watiko is covert. Right, so whether it's hiding in the shadow or hiding in the light, the whole deal with it is that it's hiding. Yeah. So, you know, we seek fellowship in the mystical opening, right? And the awakening can feel so isolated for some time. Um, ostriches with their heads in the sand, even if there's a field of them, are not necessarily together. Right. And when you pop your head out, it can feel so alienating. You're you're the strange one. You know? Right. But when others pop their head out too, we find our way to this fellowship. It's like that aloneness is this um, initiation to take us away from that which would keep us asleep so that we can awaken, which in a sense at the beginning seems to be necessarily individual and independent. But then we come into fellowship with others who are awakening and dreaming this dream up together. Mm -hmm. So even sharing this information that you're sharing, it's like this is the last thing what Tico would possibly want. Oh, and totally, it brings yeah. me back to quantum physics because these theories that you're describing, they've been around for some time now. And yet it would seem that most physicists still, at least school teachers in this, are not acceptive of the quantum breakthroughs. Yeah. That yeah. they're still limited in more of a mechanistic yeah, world yeah, yeah. view, and it would seem that's what Tico trying to yeah. keep the heads in this. Well, thing. that's, you know, I have another book, um, you know, down the road that I'm almost finished with on exactly that, on quantum physics. And um, 
you know, so so many physicists, whether they're in academia or in you know corporations, they're they have the the discoveries of quantum physics to solve their equations and to develop technology, but they they don't they're, they're not it's not okay for them to really inquire into well what does it mean. You know, because all of a sudden then the factor of consciousness enters into the equation, which is not what supposedly physics is about. And so even, you know, so many of the quantum physicists are, um, even though they're, they're in the field of quantum physics, they're still thinking classically, like, you know, the, the Newtonian physics And what I mean is that we've all been so conditioned to think of this world as, first off, made of separate parts of the fundamental building blocks, but of being objective, of being separate and solid, and that we're in here as an observer, as a subject, and the world out there is an object, and the two are separate. That's an entrainment that has been so conditioned into the subterranean realms of the unconscious that even people in the field of quantum physics are, they might be understanding the theory, because quantum physics absolutely empirically has proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, there's not even a question about this, that there's there's nothing objective. You can't even talk. To talk about an objective universe is nonsense. Hmm. It makes no sense whatsoever that the act of observing, the very act of observing, whether it's the electron, the element, whatever the elementary particle is, the the world at large... Whatever it is we're observing is actually invoking the very, it's influencing the very, the very universe observed. That the observer and the observed, that, you know, more and more they're realizing, oh, they're not separate. And so a lot of the quantum physicists are really understanding that intellectually and working with all the equations and, you know, um, creating these unbelievable technologies, but they're still. Um, way deep in the psyche entrained in the Newtonian mechanistic, um, deterministic classical perspective and you know why I'm writing a book about quantum physics it's just you know absolutely um, it's it's just you know in completely proving and supporting in every possible way what I'm writing about in Dispelling Watiko and um yeah, so I think it's important that even people who are really some of the most you know brilliant people on our planet are still kind of entrained in a, in a real asleep way, mm. and of course that's an expression to me of oh yeah well of course we're having a psychic epidemic it makes sense that even you know even people who are intellectually brilliant could be asleep in certain ways and that actually certainly seems to be the case you know I mean it's funny it's like the quantum physicists they're actually having this reaction towards their own discovery. So they're like discovering, oh, there's no objective reality, and it's clear that consciousness is part of the equation of quantum physics, and yet they don't want to look at that, Hmm. and they can't deal with that. And interestingly, Watiko disease, one way of describing Watiko disease, I was talking about it's a form of psychic blindness. It works through the unconscious, through the blind spots of the mind. It's, it's when we look away, when something is presented to us and we avoid relationship with that thing, whatever that thing is. When we look away, 
that becomes the doorway through which the Watiko bug then operates through us. And that's what's happening in quantum physics. That you know, the majority of quantum physicists, they understand intellectually the implications of their theory, but they look away from it. They just, oh no, we're not a we don't deal with philosophy. We can't, you know, we're not no, we only are dealing with stuff that's quantifiable, that's, you know, repeatable. They have all these particular parameters. And so it's like the skeleton in the closet in the in you know in the closet of quantum physics and very few physicists are dealing with it because their funding is from the the corporations, the war machine, where, you know, if you depend on um, the money to fund, you know, the research you're doing and you know, on certain, you know, sort of corporations that if you then are speaking about consciousness which they don't want you to talk about you quickly learn oh to not talk about that stuff right but it's even larger than that in this Mm -hmm. case it would seem because um you know there's examples like in archaeology for example finding um gobekli tuppy you know in turkey at the syrian border like clearly carbon dated 10 to 12,000 years old, more advanced than Stonehenge, and let's just not look at that because it defies the current model, and if we talk about that, it's going to take the funding away, but this example seems to be even more profound, Um, this idea that science has had to become this rigid, realist, separate thing, which is not how it began anyway, but when the quantum nature of the universe makes itself more and more evident and science can no longer run away from that. The solution is to run into it and then create these models within it of separation, even though it's telling you that it's about togetherness, right? And it seems that even beyond the um, agents of Wetiko, right, who might be the system and those funding the science and whatnot, that it's Wetiko itself who won't allow this um, merging energy of the quantum field to be seen because it brings us together in our power to co-create with one another. Yeah, and and what you're saying, I mean, it's so right on because in my quantum physics book, one of the things I talk about is that, um, in a sense, um, quantum physics is like this. What it's showing us is that we ourselves have enormous power to create our experience. And the powers that be, that's their worst nightmare, is for people to wake up to that. So the insights of quantum physics, in a sense, have been taken by, you know, the. and this isn't some sort of paranoid conspiracy theory. This, if you have open eyes, you know, you can see this really clearly. You know, um, so the insight of quantum physics has sort of been taken by the powers that be, and very few people understand it, whereas if more people, if it became like you know, kind of a more um, expansive um, understanding amongst our species, it would change everything because all of a sudden it would get us in touch with that we have this enormous power that we're moment by moment invoking our experience. And um, so part of, uh, in a sense, um, you know, what, what our task is, is to it, I call it the most profound form of activism is to get in touch with our quantum nature and to have the recognition that yeah moment by moment we ourselves are the ones who are actually interpreting the dream and placing meaning onto our experience and thereby invoking our experience of both ourselves and the world 
And then when you have more and more people who are tuned in in that way, you know, like I was saying before, you can really make a difference. You can change the waking dream in a way that really makes a difference. Right, but I yeah. love how you describe the, the activist nature within it, because it's not yeah. just the softening to, okay, we're all one, so what can I do about it? So we are all one, and so now I'm creator, and this is what I can do. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that, that's, that's bullshit, the idea of, oh, I'm just going to be passive, and we're all one, and I'm just going to sit and do my mantras, and then everything will be okay. And meanwhile, like, the, the world is burning. The world, mm-hmm. you know, we're destroying ourselves. I talk about in the book that I, I call it um, to become um, to become a spiritually informed political activist. That you can't just be um, a spiritual person who's just doing their practice and in avoidance of what's happening in the greater body politic of the world because we're at the time in our history where our inner process is manifesting mm through the medium of the outside world, which means that the way to work on yourself inwardly is to actively participate in life and in the outer world. But then the shadow side, like then there are the political activists who are actively activating, you know, doing their activism in the world, but it, not, it might not be steeped in, in spiritual wisdom. Right. And they're then reacting, seeing the evil out there and trying to like do good. They have the best intentions and they want to get rid of the evil. But by holding that viewpoint and being polarized, they're unwittingly feeding Watiko too. So that's why you have to combine the spiritually informed, you have to have a spiritually informed political activism where they actually can cross-pollinate each other. And that then is, in a sense, what having that sacred form of activism, that's what we're being called to Mm. do. Right, and then be careful how we spiritually uh, become activists, right? Because... There's many in the world who um, are spending hours every day in meditation to release the world from samsara and suffering, right? And um, and then not looking at their own, right? So it's all projected without. And my question always when I speak to some of those practitioners is, why? Like, why are you working to release suffering for all others? Because isn't that suffering in this earth game also part of the gift that's going to awaken them? Do you know what I mean? Right. No. Well, it's interesting because, you know, that, like that experience of of a really good person, well-intentioned, they're doing their spiritual practice, and they're feeling like, oh, if I just get myself in order, the whole world will get in order. And the thing is, is that there's truth to that in one level. But it's also like them being in this like in like sort of like this narcissistic state because they're not recognizing that the world is actually like I was saying it's a reflection the outer world is a reflection of their inner state and um, that if you know so if they're going oh I'm just you know certain people are called Mm. not a lot but there are definitely people who are called to just go into caves and meditate and do prayers and mantras and that's the way that they can absolutely, you know, best be of benefit for the world. But, like, then there are a lot of people who are just in avoidance because the world is so dark and scary and there's such evil, and, oh, let me just, you know, do my own practice, which is great, but if they're in avoidance of what's happening out there, then the question I have is, are they actually ultimately helping anything, you know? And it's a tricky thing you were saying. On the one hand, you want to, you know, to help people not to suffer, 
but on the other hand, sometimes suffering is a real gift. And for me, maybe that that brings up the idea of making um, a distinction with language. Like on the one hand, there's like there's unproductive suffering. There's like a neurotic suffering, which is like a hamster in a hamster wheel just going around and there's nothing good that comes out of that. But then there's suffering, which some, you know, the mystics talk about suffering being sent by God, which actually purifies us. Like when you make gold, you have to put it in a furnace to refine it to make 24 karat gold. Mm -hmm. That same idea, that's different than the neurotic suffering, which nothing good comes out of it. When, um, you know, that other type of suffering that comes from sort of a transpersonal source that can actually help us um, to connect with who we are. And that just brings into mind, but to my mind, the archetype of like the shaman and the healer who's wounded, the, the wounded healer, the idea being that we're all wounded. And I know how I came to this was I suffered an enormous wound. And, um, you know, the whole, when the self gets born, um, it's a wounding experience. And I could have spent my whole life identified with the wound or reacting against the wound or trying to heal the wound. And then it would just be that unproductive suffering. But, you know, thankfully, and it took me a number of years, and I'm still a work in process, I've more and more understood that the wound, it actually had a source that wasn't from my ego, but it was some higher source and that actually it was a doorway for me to deepen my own connectedness to myself and my own understanding and realization. And that's where, and then think about the wounded healer is related to the shaman. The shaman typically gets called. It's not something one would ever do in their right mind, saying, oh, I'm going to become a shaman. It's not like that. It's not like, oh, I'm taking a workshop this weekend, let me become a shaman, or, you know, it's nothing like that. It's typically um, presented as you're called by the spirits. And um, and the idea being is that when you first get called, almost always it looks like you're going crazy. And um, because the shamanic archetype is steeped in trauma and wounding and abuse, and it certainly was for me, that's what precipitated um, the whole process for me. And then I looked on the surface, you know, like I was having this total psychotic break, but that's when I began to, um, you know, to step out of my of my consensus reality identity, and I began, you know, to actually descend into the unconscious, into the underworld of the unconscious, into the darkness, which is the archetypal. That's the journey, and um, where you have to come to terms with like evil and demons and death and all those things. And over the course of my life, I was realizing oh, wow, you know, what really is healing for me? Well, a number of things, um, but one of them was to express myself in a creative way, that if I wasn't creative, then my energy just became, in a, instead of constructive, it became destructive, whether it's self or other destructive. And so as an artist, you know, and now I'm expressing myself creatively with with my books and writing, um, I, you know, I just was like, oh yeah, the idea of um, expressing creatively was the very thing that was actually, you know, helping me to integrate my split off parts and, and really helping me to accomplish more 
becoming or getting in alignment with the shamanic archetype because I don't I don't really like to think of myself as a shaman. I think of myself as oh I'm in training like we're all in training. Who right. among us is not a shaman in training? And I definitely can identify myself as a wounded healer because I'm so in touch with my wound. But instead of just you know contracting, sort of trying to get away from it. No, I'm like more and more able to be with it and embrace it and, and to like have relationship to it like it's actually this doorway, you know, for me to just actually enter into a deeper part of myself. And um, because the thing about the creative energy, if I can just say one more thing about it, is that um, the thing about Watiko is that it's this archetypal energy. It's this, in a sense, this, this daimonic energy. And daimonic, so Watiko, it's it's an archetypal transpersonal energy. It's greater than just the ego or just the person. And um, by being daimonic, the word one's daimon is the guiding spirit or the inner voice. And if you actually connect with your inner voice, with your guiding spirit, with your daimon, you will find your calling, your, you'll find your voice, you'll find your voca- um, vocation, what you're here to do, and actually genius, and the word genius etymologically is related to daimon and calling and voice and vocation. All those things are etymolo- etymologically related. And um, so the idea is, is that we all have a particular daimon or inner voice or guiding spirit or calling or genius or vocation and when you have that shamanic descent if you cooperate with that energy then it will support you in accomplishing the shamanic journey but if you resist and say no 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 i can't do that then that that same energy that was that daimon that was that genius and that calling becomes negative and becomes a demon Right, you know? yeah, and all the threads run together, right? Because often it's the wound that connects us to the diamond and to the genius. Um, right. As an artist myself, um, you know, a, a saxophone player, for me, initially the saxophone was this instrument. And it was a need because I didn't have space to express my own emotional pain and what I was going through. So music allowed me to do that in a way that was safe. Right, because it was not necessarily understood, or if it was, at least it wasn't me speaking these things that shouldn't be spoken. And as I really became more present with my wound and started cultivating the the medicine from that poison or the alchemical gold from that lead, which of course is a lifelong process, uh, I found that I had to put my instrument away for a little while until I could come into relationship with it where it was no longer an instrument. Right? And actually ask my saxophone, who are you? Mm -hmm. What do you want to play? Right? Right. And as I was learning to express my own um, wound, poison, whatever, emotional strife, you know, with my language, with my heart, the saxophone no longer was a need. And then now it's become a different um, source of creation for me. 
Mm-hmm. But really, then I was led to what I feel is my truest creative gift at this point in my life, which is my work as an astrologer. Mm-hmm. And I want to bring that in a little bit here. There's so many things, but one is uh, after pursuing music for a long time, then um, I went back to school and did a mechanical engineering degree. Oh, wow. And what snapped me out of that, fortunately, was I had this experience in college. And I was a little older in college at this point, but you know we speak about Newtonian physics, right? That's kind of like the the reality physics and the structured, separative physics, which is so interesting anyway, because Newton was this great mystic and astrologer right. and all of this. But I had this experience one time where I looked up and I was looking at this street lamp on campus, and I saw the whole Newtonian free body diagram that you draw in physics class there in the air around us oh i'm limiting my consciousness to this world view where everything is force arrows and you know Mm -hmm. mathematical expressions and i want and i had to break out of that because to me that's a huge essence of the separativeness you know so there's this happening astrologically um that first made me think of you that'd be really fun to have a conversation um and it's the planets Saturn and Neptune that are coming into what's called the square alignment and 90 degree alignment. It tends to be kind of a tense conversation between planetary energies. And why it really made me think of you is Saturn's often seen as the reality where Neptune's seen as the dream. Right. So this energy of no, we're in a dream, no, we're in reality, but then the essence right. and the beauty of it is finding structure to bring the dream into reality in a right. working nature. Right. Right. And it really goes, you know, Neptune was discovered in 1846. So in ancient times, Saturn was the furthest out, the last light we can see. And it was always known as the edge and seen as like the boundaries and this kind of thing. Uranus was discovered in 1781 with a telescope, William Herschel, who also discovered infrared with prisms. So in both examples, we're extending our observations beyond the limits of human senses, right? Using technology, this was Industrial Revolution. And Uranus, given that was the zeitgeist of the time, carries a lot of that energy. But Neptune later was mathematically calculated because there were observations that something was pulling on Uranus. And so you could calculate where Neptune was, and once they sorted that out, they pointed the telescopes there, and Neptune, right? So even in and of itself, Neptune's discovery shows us that everything is connected, Mm. that we all have pull on one another, right? Mm -hmm. So what's interesting to me just in that conversation is it's like this old guard, the old edge, and he used to be the, the, the... wall and the gate you know but now there's these other breakthroughs and neptune just like we are all connected in this dream it's Mm -hmm. really interesting to see those energies and kind of a tense conversation because wetiko itself which is not necessarily which isn't at all outside of us but is of us right the last thing it wants us to know is that it is right yeah, and that yeah, we totally. live in a dream and it's going to yeah. try to keep us in that kind of materialistic framework that would keep us out of right. more of a quantum world view yeah 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 and, and it's just interesting because what you're saying I'm, you know it makes me associate to you know um, the archetype of the father who's the negative father is Saturn mm-hmm. you know and and that from the mythological point of view because I talk about Watiko in all these different ways in as many ways as I can imagine 
And um, from that point of view, um, Watiko is you know operating through the archetype of the negative father, which has to do with domination and power. Instead of being having instead of having a relationship, it just has to do with power over others. And um, you know, and just going back because uh, I realized one thing too about like I was talking about the creativity with the daimon. Well, um, the ancient people would talk about, oh, there are these demons. In psychology, they would have a phrase, there are these complexes, and when they split off and become like not connected to the wholeness, they become autonomous. And then when you have an autonomous complex, it, we experience them as being like an other, an alien, some sort of separate part of our psyche that's in opposition to us. Well, autonomous complexes are exactly what the indigenous ancient people would call demons. And so, um, you know, and, 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 and actually one thing I want to say that I keep on thinking about, because there are all these different, you know, in my book, I'm really trying to help the reader to see Watiko, because when you see it, then everything has changed then it's like there's no going back. You can't not see it anymore. Mm. And you begin to see how it operates in, in your own mind, in relationships, in the family system, in, you know, in the collective. And psychologically, the way Watiko works is, you know, we all have a shadow. I mean, we have light. We're made of light. And when there's light, there's shadows. And, um, but if we're not really um, being embracing to our own shadow, what do we do? We project it out. We project the shadow. And when we do that, you know, one way of really understanding um, how Watiko works is by understanding shadow projection. So say if I'm not in touch with my own shadow, and keep in mind this totally informs Saturn and the negative father and, you know, because all the, the levels are interpenetrating. So if I'm not in touch with my own darkness... I'm going to disassociate from it. I'm going to, it's going to, I'm going to split it off and I'm going to project it outside of myself. And then, well, just think about if you're in a dream and if I'm in a night dream and if I'm disassociated from a part of myself and I split it off and project it out, then what, what is the dream going to do? It has no choice but to then shapeshift and it will then reflect that energy that I've just projected out into it because what is a dream but a projection? So, you know, into the dream will walk somebody or a group of people or a country or whatever it is who will then be the carriers of my own shadow. Mm. And of course, if I don't recognize them as reflecting my own darkness, then when I see that person or that group of people or that nation or whoever, I'm going to then, um, you know, basically want to destroy them, which itself is a reflection of, well, that's what I was doing from the get-go, I was actually wanting to get rid of my own darkness. Well, now that process is actually expressing itself through the medium of the outer world, whether it's the night dream or in our waking dream. So, so say somebody is in my waking dream or night dream carrying my shadow. Well, now I have evidence that the darkness really is out there because, look, they're embodying it. Hmm. And so all of a sudden, that makes me more entrenched, being identified with the light, and I'm more, you know, I have all the evidence I need that that evil is out there. So then I even more project out the shadow. And the more I do that, the more they or whoever they are will embody it, which then confirms to me, you know, that my point of view is correct. 
that's the feedback loop. And of course, they're probably doing the same thing to me. So then by trying to destroy them, which like I'm saying is a reflection of our own inner process of trying to get rid of our own darkness, we then become possessed by the very evil that we're actually reacting to out there. So we actually, and we become very self-righteous in mm. that process. You know, like I can think about how many groups are doing that. I mean, that's what our species is doing to the extent that they're under the spell of Watiko. And that's the way that Watiko actually propagates. So you see, when I say it, it, it actually it operates through the unconscious, say, for example, if somebody, say like with World War II with Hitler. Now, Hitler is a perfect example of somebody who was, he was absolutely taken over by, you know, Watiko. And, you know, the thing about Watiko, it doesn't always look like Hitler. It, it can look like the person could be like, a, oh, a, a good father, a good, uh, a, you know, a businessman, a leader, a really altruist. It can appear in a myriad of guises. It doesn't always look the same way. That's one of the things that makes it hard to recognize. But why I bring up Hitler, think about the people who were following Hitler. Well, some of them, some maybe a lot of them, were these Germans who were just good, normal people who thought... Oh, well, this is the Fuhrer, our father, our leader. He's, you know, uh, wanting to benefit our country. But the point is, is that Hitler could never have done what he did without, you know, the support of the collective. Right, and, because yeah. they're also dreaming into it. And so many of them doing that unconsciously, right? So when we see these great shifts and it's leading towards the darkness and people aren't awake to it, we're all dreaming that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless we awaken to it, we won't stop that and have a new dream, right? Right, and the thing is, is that, so just going back to that Hitler example, like, so then by having, you know, these, this collective, you know, these millions of Germans who are supporting him, they then, you know, yeah, some of them might be really having bad intentions or, you know, acting out the will to power of the shadow, but some of them are just normal people who just thought, oh, this is our leader and we're, you know, supporting our leader. But unwittingly, they become the instrument for the propagation of the bug, not mm -hmm. locally. And that's the way evil works. It works through, like, um, not just, it, it can, of course, work through one person, but it works collectively. And, and when there is, like, an unconscious, and the thing about Watiko is that when somebody is fully taken over by it, like Hitler, they have a certain charm and a charisma and they and it becomes it's a contagious disease of the mind so because they can really appear very brilliant and very compassionate and and having this charm and charisma they can easily entrance other people to like support them and that's the way the field that non-locally is getting dreamed up to to actually to replicate the virus because we are dreaming we are creating so unless there's awareness and sovereignty in our creations we're going to kind of create the zeitgeist or the theme of what's going on and if Watiko has anything to do with it it's going to yeah. ask us to create its creations right yeah yeah yeah. well if we i mean really the equation is that if we're dreaming and if we're it's there's nothing wrong with being unconscious we all have an unconscious you know, I mean, everything we do is informed, you know, by the unconscious in, in a certain way. But if we insist on staying unconscious, and if we don't have the recognition of what's being shown to us, one of the most harmful things is when, in a person's process, when they have the, the opportunity to wake up, and they actually don't, and they just compulsively insist on staying unconscious, 
that has an incredibly sort of toxic effect on the psyche. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, you know, by if, if many, many people are unwittingly enacting their unconscious and, and they're not seeing what's actually getting reflected to help them to wake up, you can guarantee that then that unconsciousness is going to equal destruction. Right. You know, I mean, you know what's interesting about the um, shadow masculine, masculine and their controlling force if we continue to run the Saturn thread, you know, I mean... So Saturn has this pretty bad rap and mythologically ate his children, you know? Yeah, Kronos. And, and yeah. castrated his father. Right. But it's also said that he ruled over a golden age. Yeah, yeah. And He's he, the purifier. He purifies. Right, and he yeah. castrated his father to protect his mother, right? Because Uranus was, was raping Gaia, basically. And she conspired with the children that Uranus had commanded not be delivered. They were trapped within her stomach because she had spoken this prophecy that one of them would take his kingdom. So from within the womb, Saturn castrates his father and the phallus falls into the ocean and that becomes Venus after its blood hits the ground and that's the Furies. And the, the mythos is so rich, but even that energy of the, of the bad father... Um, which plays out in so many of our lives. You know, I've heard you speak about this for you, certainly. Mm -hmm. In my own experience, um, that was the one of the two where my stuff is with. Mm -hmm. And we don't typically find a mystic with a perfect nurturing childhood that just doesn't seem to be part of the recipe for the awakening. Right. But um, that energy, it's also... And we can see that play out in, in the world at large, right? It's asking us to find the sovereign father within right and in yeah, a sense yeah. to become and, our own father in that way. and the thing it's interesting because one of my teachers was just here actually two of my teachers were just here the last couple months these llamas um and um there was one of them who he's probably you know i've known them for over 30 years but you know this time i heard something i never heard before and i'm sure he said it a million times but i just wasn't ready to hear it and what he was saying was that, you know, these in Tibet, these great enlightened beings, they didn't get enlightened because everything was great. Mm -hmm. No, there were these, you know, trials and tribulations and hardships and obscurations and obstacles. And that's what, in a sense, catalyzed them to attain realization. Mm -hmm. And just like same thing with the Buddha, the Buddha himself, he's under the Bodhi tree, you know, about to become enlightened. And what happens? All the dark forces, the evil forces come and try to torment him and seduce him and I point out in the Spelling Watiko that oh those darker forces you can actually realize that those are allies of Buddha that they actually helped him to develop it was like he was going to the gym and he developed the muscle of realization mm. and without those darker forces he wouldn't have been able to catapult himself into realization you know? Right, and Satan and Jesus in the 40 days, and, and the, sac the sacredness of the wound, right? So, I mean, it's interesting, like, astrologically, at least in my practice, Saturn will be the fears and will be those restrictions, but then it's also the wisdom that's yeah. cultivated through... And the thing about the restrictions, the thing about Saturn, um, too, is that it, it creates this the restrictions that limits us, it binds us, and yet, um, one of the things that I'm continually, you know, deepening my discovery of in my own personal process is it's only by really experiencing or, you know, being finite, that's the doorway to, in a sense, to the infinite. Right. There is you no know? freedom without the cage. 
And yeah. that's, that's the sacred service of the cage, right? And as it gets tighter and tighter, you realize you're the one keeping yourself locked in it, but it's served you because now you're aware to it and you come out. The Saturn moves, we've heard about the Saturn return, you know, 29 and a half years old or whatever. It, it kind of moves in these seven and a quarter year spans. And um, so 15 years ago is this major event, which was such an awakening force when we speak about Watiko as also in service to awaken us to what Watiko is. You know, I often think of 9-11, which was this stimulus for so many people who are sticking their heads through the veil now. Right. Because it's dark on a million levels, and you can dive into that unfolded and get into one conspiracy theory after the next until you're, like, all the way out to, like, Tesla's space-based weapons, and it can just get crazy. But the point of it, more than anything, was it was like that that Morpheus red pill, you know, for those right. who chose to swallow it and come into awakening. But then the true key to it, I find... Um, in, in the words of our, Neil, our friend Neil Kramer, I really love this idea of like fix yourself to fix the world. So what your work's done, helped me do and, and what Neil's work as well has contributed to this is getting to this place of like, oh, okay, like right, all that shadow, all that outside stuff, but what is my 9-11? What, what Patriot Act have I signed within to hide from my inner darkness? Because of course that symbol is a projection, a reflection of my own shadow, right, right? Right. Just like as in a dream, a night dream. Yeah. Or Fukushima, right? So the example with Fukushima that I like to sit and contemplate is how has my power become toxic, right? Or how is my addiction to old energy forms keeping me from bringing forth the new free energy? So the, the key there, though I do stay tuned to the outer world, is not to run out there with the hazmat suit and the Paul Stamus mycelial network to heal the radiation or whatever. It's to find my own toxicity within and bring healing to that yeah. with the perspective that if I do, then the Fukushima without, which is a reflection of me, will also find healing, right? Yeah, well, it, what you're saying makes me think of, you know, um, and I see this with, um, you know, in my family or in the human family is it's it's hard it, it can be hard i don't want to cast a spell but it can be traumatizing for people to recognize their own complicity in evil in the evil that's playing out and sometimes just being silent or just oh i have my job as a secretary in this you know multi-level corporation well yet you're a cog in the wheel that's perpetrating genocide potentially you know and to, to look at that, to look at that is like, you know, it, 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 it's trauma-inducing. And so that's why people don't look at it, because it's easier not to look at. Mm. And, um, you know, so that's, um, you know, and, and the other thing that what you were saying made me think of is the, the way, so in the book, you know, I'm, I'm really flooding light on Watiko and all the way it operates as, as off as, you know, many ways as I can imagine to articulate that and I'm pointing out that to the extent that we connect with compassion with real compassion not idiot compassion mm. you know not smiley face compassion because um, sometimes compassion can be really fierce and to the extent that we really connect with real authentic with great compassion 
And that compassion isn't just for other beings, but that includes ourselves. So when you were saying, yeah, you're like being able to like embrace the toxic parts of you or that mm-hmm. are in you. And, um, you know, that really is a dissolve, that dissolves Watiko. That's the Watiko dissolver par excellence. And if I could just say one thing, because there's all these ways that I'm, you know, pointing out Watiko, and I'd like to just describe another one that just I, I remembered. And that is the thing about Watiko, it's it's an archetypal energy, so it's you can think of it as a higher dimensional energy that's formless. It doesn't have a particular form. It doesn't look if it had a particular form, we could just say, Oh, let me draw you the form, that's what it looks like, that's what you should look for. It's not like that. It's a shape shifting bug. And what it does it shapeshifts and assumes your form and my mm-hmm. form. And then if we're not awake in that moment, we will just identify with, I can talk for me, with the Paul who is presenting myself as being who I am. Or it can have I can have a particular belief, this limiting belief. Oh, that's not possible to do. Or I can have a thought form. Oh, I want to eat that thing or I want to do this or whatever the, you know, the phenomena is. But if we, at that moment, aren't awake, we then identify with that thought form, with that belief, with that identity. And then, all of a sudden, we've identified with who we're not. And we've given away who we are, simultaneous. And then we've become an instrument for Watiko then to act itself out in the world, and we become, its un- we become a secret agent our secret being secret even to ourselves. Hmm. And that's really... And they, you know, they talk about this in the Bible. They talk about the counterfeiting spirit that mm. just, you know, it apes you, it mimes you, it impersonates you. And when you then identify with it, you become a master copy. You become a duplicate of yourself. Hmm. And, you know, and ultimately you're, you, you lose your soul. That's what happens. And that's where people become not connected with their heart. And they don't they aren't human in a certain way anymore and that they lose touch with empathy. You know? yeah, and, I see, and, and your book just shows so many beautiful examples of this and difficult examples of this. Perhaps the coolest chapter title ever is Vampire Squid Economics, right? Um, which is a reflection of this macrocosmic um, essence of Watiko of our fiat currency system. Right. But even that is a reflection of us. Yeah. Right, so with Watiko, you know, having that thing of, oh, it's out to get me, well, that's not it, because it's not objective, it's not separate from the self. Or I have Watiko, like it's some disease, like it seems to me like the true way to pass through it is, I am Watiko, and now I choose not to be it, right? And that sovereignty in that statement alone creates that release, but it is through that creative spirit and choosing our own creation where we take our power back in that sense. Well, it's it's interesting because the thing about Watiko, Watiko, it can't steal our soul, but it can trick us into giving it away. Mm. And um, I talk about this in the last part of my book, the way to really heal Watiko. So when we, it's a shape-shifting bug that like impersonates us, assumes our form, we identify with it, then we've given ourselves away, we've disconnected from our power, We've identified with who we're not, but the way to really um, to heal Watiko is to connect with who we actually are. 
to mm. connect with the part of us that isn't possessable, to connect with the part of us, you see, because when we identify with Watiko, then we've been taken over, we become literally possessed. And um, But when we get in touch with the part of us that is not possessable, that we actually always possess and are in touch with, that's the true nature. Right, the untouchable source light that we truly are. Right, right. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, I point out from the Buddhist point of view, they continually point out that nature, that it's like a mirror, that it's like the sky, or, you know, and they have all these metaphors to try to help you to see it. And the thing which is interesting, think about, oh, the true nature, it's like a mirror. Well, a mirror, it just effortlessly, without any effort at all, it just reflects whatever is put in before it. Even the darkest, most evil object, it doesn't taint or stain the mirror. The mirror is completely pure. It doesn't get stained by the darkest, vilest reflection. And yet, we wouldn't notice the mirror without the reflections. So the reflections are actually the expression of the mirror. It helps us to recognize the mirror, which we wouldn't have been able to see without the reflections. But we then tend to identify with the reflection and don't notice the mirror. Right, and so as I say, well, I am Watiko, the beautiful thing is the empowerment is... Because then I express that, then no, I'm not. Because now I release myself from that. Or as you say, that Watiko can trick you into giving your soul away. Well, the beautiful thing is you can always have your soul back. As yeah. soon as you claim it. Because the right. truth is it's untouchable. Yeah. Right. And so there's that beauty in that projection. I love this exercise of actually very much like disassociating yourself from your shadow, projecting without even giving it a name. Yeah. But then using that shadow, that dark essence, as the spirit guide into your unconscious shadows, where you find it there, find it to yourself, and then bring it back to the light. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful because, you know, that's, in essence, I mean, we're all, being that this is a dream, you know, I'm talking about, oh, the dreamlike nature of reality. Well, what is a dream? It's a projection. We're always projecting Hmm. onto the inkblot. And what you just described is like, well, wait a second, we're doing this thing 24-7 anyway, projecting. Why not do it in a way that can actually serve us, you know? And that's why, you know, the importance of, oh, yeah, to objectify your own darkness to, you know, and it's not hard to objectify your own split off, you know, the demon. It's not hard to do it all because by its nature, it personifies itself because it's an autonomous complex. It actually will, the way it'll manifest will be in personified form. So it, it is offering itself to be objectified. Right. You know? But the challenge to take our power back also, right, like a great example I'd love to share is a client who comes and tells me, you know, she's sad and, oh, men only want me for sex. And it's like, oh, what a drag, you know, but eventually coaxing her into saying, try this. I only want men who only want me for sex. Mm. And what's the essence? What's the beauty? Well, there's none. Right? So, well, just relax, you know, let's see what, what in there, what, what can be beautiful, and then we can use that to, to, you know, follow the river down to the source where, you know, there's some wound earlier or whatever, and that protection of not wanting to really intimately share ourselves with another after being hurt or whatever, right? So, but there's that essence of taking power back, or a, an example from my own life, you know, and seeing my mother deal with some sickness and, 
you know, my judgments of her, oh, she doesn't want to heal because I'm seeing that she wants to give her healing energy more to others than herself and won't take that rest. And right. the only way that I can bring any healing to that in my own experience is to heal the wound within that would want a mother that doesn't choose healing. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, you saying that, it just makes me think, you know, I mean, for me, I, I won't go into the whole story, you know, and I've, I've, you know, I finished a book, it's coming out in a couple of weeks, you know, all about my, my process with, with my father, because my father was the one, he was really taken over by Watiko and acted it out, and I was the only child, and, you know, it almost destroyed me. I mean, it literally destroyed my entire family. I have no family left. And um, so I, I really, I mean, that opens up like, you know, I have a lot to say about that. But um, the thing I want to say just as I'm thinking of, um, you know, what you're talking about in Watiko, so I end my book by the importance of finding the name. That when, you know, because the way we use, the, the way we, we choose the language we use and the words we use it's not just we're not just like describing something, but we're actually it's actually a creative process of the way we language. And um, so I point out that in mythologies the world over, it's incredibly important um, when there's like a demon, say in a fairy tale or something, to find the name and not just any name, but to find the right name. Because when you find the name of the demon, that takes away its power and it empowers you. And I talk about, oh, you know, Watiko, it's a Native American term. It, for them, they have a whole mythology. And, and just as a Western modern person, I'm, I, I'm translating it, what they were realizing, into a more psychological idiom. Um, but, the, you know, the point is, 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 so I'm not attached to that, oh, we have to use the name Watiko, because every wisdom tradition, you know, that I'm, I'm more and more blown away as I study Kabbalah or... Hawaiian kahuna or Islam or Christianity or Buddhism or I mean every wisdom tradition what makes a wisdom tradition a wisdom tradition is are they actually able to articulate what the Native Americans call Watiko and if they don't then it's not a wisdom tradition but the point is is that when we find the name of the the demon then we take away its power and we empower ourselves. And so it's basically pointing out the incredible importance of of bringing consciousness to Watiko and becoming fluent in how it operates in a way that we can actually communicate with each other. Because when more and more of us connect with each other and create, in a sense, a hermetic container so as to metabolize the acting out of Watiko that same energy that's informing the Watiko virus is actually, um, can be alchemically channeled into the highest creativity and love. And so that's really the point of my book. Yeah, and the true name to find the healing for you is going to be different than it is for me, right? And so that's part of that hermetic container. Like, we come together in fellowship, we find that we can share this dream that we're awakening to um, together, but then that also brings us into a new awareness of self and the strength of self to kind of finish that job and selfness that first felt like um, uh, separation, right? 
Um, yeah, and so, you know, and I, I come back to more of a, a general name that you share in the book, and even before you wrote with Tico in the first book, that it was uh, malignant egophrenia, right? right? right. Or me disease, right. or mad right. emperor disease, right. or, or Middle East, Middle East, East disease, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's one of the great synchronicities to this current project um, because this project is called the Thirteenth Flower, and what it is is it's working with um, a nineteen-month cycle that's a Venus cycle, and the way that we believe the Sumerians did because the Sumerians called Venus Anana. And there's this great story of Anana's descent into the underworld and ascent from the underworld eventually after a, a kind of shamanic death and rebirth. And um, in that story, Anana goes to visit the god of wisdom, Enki, who's really kind of a rather Saturn figure. He doesn't play out in the dark Saturn way in, in those texts, but he gives to her the, the holy me, it's called. And it's this word oh, that wow. really hasn't been translated. And they just use capital M-E. So when I saw oh, that in her text, I was funny. like, wow. And so when she's going into the underworld, she adorns herself with seven holy me. There's a crown, and there's oh, earrings, wow. and a necklace, right. and a golden breastplate, and a girdle of birthstones, and a ring of power, and a red robe. And they very much correlate to the human chakra system. Right. And on her way down, she has to remove, she passes through these seven gates. And she has to remove first her crown, right? And she goes all the way down until she's stark naked and there's this death and rebirth. And then she comes up and she reclaims them. And it, it's tracked by the, the movements of Venus and the moon through our morning sky and then our evening sky, which if folks are just seeing this video of this project now, you can go through the earlier chapters and, and see how all that correlates. But so... <clears throat> I'm calling um, different philosophers and artists and astrologers and such and healers and feelers of all the walks of the way to bring their wisdom as it correlates to different parts of this path. And we're currently in the month where we're kind of investigating the release of the third eye. Right. And so the question is, what do we need to clean there? And, you know, the, the general answer there is perceptions. And so I thought that your wisdom would be so valuable and very much feel that everything that you're sharing today is in such great service to those who have been participating in this journey that's a few months in now. Um, because when we're talking about shadow projection and all of this, though that correlates to all of the body's energetic systems, that's really in this place. And the, the dreaming nature seems to be such a third eye thing as well. And so this synchronicity of opening your book again, because I had read it some years ago, but now I, I'm reading it very slowly. I mean, I'll read a paragraph and just get knocked <laughs> knocked into, you know, some kind of need to sit and just contemplate for an hour on it. But I'm seeing again and again these great synchronicities, not only in my own practice, but in this cycle and the way that I'm working with it. Um, so... The me disease was really interesting. And the other thing in that word is it's, it's me, right? Yeah. And um, so this Venus cycle, the last thing I would say about that, because I don't want to get all astrological, and I think it's probably a place where we're close to wrapping up here anyway. Mm -hmm. But this is the, the kind of initiation of the divine feminine energy. Every 19 months, she's exploring a different archetype. And this current archetype is Leo. And some of the great keywords for Leo are 
the strength of self, selfness, self-love, um, sovereignty, you know, and also this just creative, manifestative energy that really requires us to mute the inner critic, or even better yet, turn that inner critic from foe to friend. Mm-hmm. And so much of your work on a very practical level, it seems like, okay, that's the healing force, right? That, that critic energy that would keep us from creating our own manifestations or would ask us to just create the collective mess, right? That is the name that we are looking for. And as we find that and speak its name, now we can convert that foe into a friend. And the, the diamond, right, leads us to that genius which then gives us that power of just sovereign artistic creation because these sculptures, these books, these songs, they're all reminders of our true masterpiece, which is us, which is actually all that ever was, is, and will be, right? And taking yeah, back that no. creative spark seems to be the, the, the true impetus of your work and Definitely. the and healing that's, of Definitely, and that's this. really beautiful what you're saying. And, and just, I guess, in conclusion for me, the one final thought based on just what you were saying about like Watiko, another name is malignanigophrenia or like ME disease, ME disease. And that one way of understanding Watiko, it's actually um, this, you know, wrong identification with who we imagine we are. It's, it's this misidentification with, you know, who we think we are. And um, the thing which is interesting is that if we then think that the world objectively exists, we've then created ourselves as a subject to that world. So the two processes, the objective world and the subjective ego, reciprocally co-arise. Those aren't like two separate processes. And, and, and then, of course, by the power of dreaming, as soon as we like identify with that or imagine that, then the whole dreamlike universe just will reflect back giving us all the evidence of the truth of that, and then we identify with a reference point, the ego. Hmm. And that's me disease. That's not who we are. And so to see through that process, and it's something, you know, the idea of in Buddhism you do practice because it's such a strong habitual pattern, they say, for like numbers of lifetimes that our species has cultivated. When you see through it, you really more and more cultivate that muscle of, of just more and more seeing through it to the point where it becomes a new, in a sense, habitual pattern to identify with who you actually are, which is the spaciousness, which is the context in which all the content arises. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you discover, oh yeah, the real um, source of evil, of Watiko, is our own clinging, is our own grasping onto that identification, thinking that we exist as a separate self, And that self-contraction then over all the dimensions of our being will elaborate itself into suffering and evil. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you see, this is what I'm describing, this is the the inside of the Buddha, who you can think of as a physician who found the cure for disease, the disease of suffering, of, you know, the, the suffering that's like unnecessary suffering, that's unproductive suffering. And when you actually see through that and you realize, oh, this self-contraction, this clinging, this is something I'm doing moment by moment. I'm actually complicit in. And you realize, oh, how do I stop? Oh, I don't have to 
do anything to stop. I just have to stop doing something. I just mm-hmm. have to, in a sense, stop clinging at something that I can't ever grasp. And and then you realize, oh, I can just who I am, who we all are, is this light. I can just let my light shine. I don't have to actually like obscure it. And when, as more and more of us do this, and this is what the what Tico psychic epidemic is actually from the dreaming point of view. And I go into this in my book. This is what the whole um, collective psychosis is actually. It's um, this revelation. It's revealing what Tico is a revelation, and this is what it's revealing to us. And as more and more see this and connect with each other and really support each other in deepening our realization, we can literally change the dream. Like I've been saying, that's what this is all about. That's whatever, that's this whole thing is we then consciously, creatively participate in our own evolution. Mm. And um, if we don't um, step up, we're just going to continue to destroy ourselves. And, you know, I'm not overly interested in seeing what, how that's going to turn out. You know, so I just want to thank you a lot for oh, like. Oh, absolutely! You know, I kind of have a couple more questions. Yeah, you, yeah, for sure. So one is just that that radiation, that illuminance that you speak of, yeah. right? And and it seems to be part of that is getting away from the um, aloneness that really leads to and is sourced from separation and returning to this connectivity, this oneness. Mm-hmm. But is there a beauty in selfness as well? within the within the one. Oh yeah, no, totally. I mean, the self, I mean, there's certain, it's like a costume where certain scenarios, it's important to like put on the suit of clothes as long as you don't identify with it. It's no problem at all. You know, I'll watch my teachers and they'll go in different circumstances and they'll assume certain particular, depending on what relationship they're having, they'll assume a certain identity in this way or that way, but they're not caught by it. They're not mm-hmm. identified with it. If they were identified with it, thinking, oh, that's who I am, though that would be problematic, because then they would be taking their infinite radiance and limiting it. Right, and that limitation, when we release ourselves from that, then we're allowing ourselves to wear many costumes. Right. And it actually becomes more exciting and more right. creative and therefore right. more powerful. Exactly, yeah. So another question is, you, you speak in the book about um, the necessity to have awareness of the symbolic, right, and... And of synchronicities, and I've heard you speak about um, catching the bug of synchronicity mm-hmm. and sharing that example of, of Jung. Um, but I'm just wondering this, from your experience working with many people in the dream groups and whatever, you know, I mean, synchronicity is really what led me to become an astrologer after I just mm-hmm. cynically denied it for my whole life as I was trained to, after many experiences, and now synchronicity really is the the winds that, that fill the sails that steer my ship. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, in catching this bug of synchronicity and being in fellowship with a community of, of, um, of fellow journeyers who follow synchronicity, my question is, has synchronicity become more frequent in my life or am I just paying attention to it now? Is it always yeah. there and now right. I'm finally looking? Well, I mean, that's very much, it makes me think of quantum physics where like... You know, like I was saying, they've discovered, oh, there's nothing objective. There's no objective universe. So the act of observing is actually, you know, influencing or affecting or invoking the universe. So then the deeper question is, oh, are they, so the quantum dimension, are they creating it or are they discovering it? You know, and it's sort of a similar thing. 
But there's a couple of thoughts that I have around your question. One is um, there's definitely something that when any one of us or when groups of us develop synchronistic perception and we're open and we realize, oh, and, you know, just being open to that there is something called synchronicity and that, wow, the boundary between the inner and the outer. And keep in mind, even Christ in the apocryphal text talks about you enter the kingdom when you make the inner as the outer. So this is like important stuff. Um, The idea being that when any one of us or groups of us are open to that, yeah, we tend to see more synchronicities. And I, I don't know how to answer that question. Oh, are they happening all the time and we're just not, we just don't don't see it, don't notice it? Or is our openness actually helping the synchronicity to become evoked? I'm not sure how I would approach answering that question, if it's even important, you know. Mm. But there's definitely something about when any person or people are open to seeing the world in that way, the world then reflects back. And the other thing your question brings up for me is like, so the thing about what Tico, you know, it has this evil aspect, sort of in alchemy, they talk about, um, you know, the God image in alchemy is, um, you know, mer- Mercurius. And the thing about Mercurius is it's found in the sewer, it's the deepest evil, and it's the highest divinity co-joined in one. It's an analog to Watiko. And, um... So the thing about Watiko, it's this evil energy that has like this 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 diabolic energy. And etymologically, diabolic means that which separates. Mm-hmm. Well, the antonym to diabolic is symbolic, the word symbol. And a symbol is what brings together the opposites. That's what a symbol is. And um, so it's it's in a sense the antidote to the diabolic. So developing symbolic awareness and sin and and you know, the word symbol, what is the language of dreams? Mm-hmm. Symbols. Right. Dreams speak symbolically. So when you develop symbolic awareness, you're actually seeing the dreamlike nature and you're having the recognition, oh, this universe is speaking symbolically. And then when you see that, oh, yeah, then you're way more probable to see the synchronistic matrix that's informing everything. Yeah. And, and all of that is dispelling the, the diabolic Watiko bug. So you see, that's why I keep on, like, you know, pointing at the dreamlike nature, the dreamlike nature. And, of course, one of the ways of really understanding the dreamlike nature is connecting with your night dreams. Right. And really remembering them and working with them and studying them and contemplating them and dreaming them. And then you begin to realize, oh, wow, the same, what I call the this deeper, like, dreaming mind that's dreaming our dreams at night is dreaming our life. And you begin to realize... My God, like the same way that my dreams are like an outpicturing of my inner process, there's some part of me that's like actually conjuring up this universe to like actually express and actually synchronistically reflect what's going on inside of me. When you begin to realize that, that's when you're beginning to wake up. That's when you're beginning to get in touch with who you are and your own power, which will... That enables you to dispel Watiko. Right, and then we become lucid here in this dream that we're sharing. And it's like you say, all you need to do is see, is open your eyes and look. Right, Um, totally. Yeah, and so when I speak about um, that kind of dream versus the reality nature that seems to be coming, I'm very interested in how that's going to unfold in the world without, within. Um, And there's this idea, not only that it's no longer... Seeing is believing, but believing is seeing. Mm-hmm. And getting to that point in 
the, the symbolic nature of the universe where, remember when there was, you know, words without letters and language without words and taking it up into a higher sim- symbology but then being very careful when we express this to use words of power and words of creation. Um, and so, Paul, you lead these kind of dream groups here of helping in fellowship, um, connecting people to waking up into the stream. And that's for folks who live in the Portland, Oregon area, as you do. Have you written any um, techniques where other people can start their own groups around that method? You know, that's something, that's one of the things that I have to do, you know, before I, I die kind of thing, you know. And, um, you know, there's a little article on my website and in, in, I think it's in the appendix of the Dispelling Watiko book, I talk about Watiko Dispelling communities and I describe what a community would look like that isn't just acting out and, you know, and propagating Watiko. And then in the middle of that appendix, I say, oh, what I'm describing are the awakening and the dream groups that I have in my living room three, four nights a week in Portland, Oregon. And, um... You know, when there are people in the groups for close to 20 years, we all become really good friends. And it's it's a real, in a sense, um, how to say this, like, you know, it's a contribution. It's a way of hanging out that is very, um, it really activates um, the unconscious. It's psychoactivating, but it's a container so that we work with. Because when you have the intention to to wake up, to transduce light, you're guaranteed going to invite a guest and the guest is the unconscious and it'll play out in the group and create separation or misunderstanding. But if you have awareness, you know, in the group, when that happens, that then that situation becomes the doorway to even deepening our lucidity. So it's very much like alchemy. Mm. And um, so we've been trying to get this out to the world for, for I've been doing this over 20 years um, and I'm not sure because there's only one of me how to you know how to do this. Um, but yeah, it's available for anybody you know to do. I would love that to have. I mean, from my point of view, the whole planet should be one big awakening in the dream group. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and it's cha- it's literally changing people's lives. I mean, not just hypothetically. Um, you know, people who've been working on a particular process for 35 years come in and sometimes in a week or two it just gets liberated or unlocked. Um, you know, so it's it's a really cool thing that I can, I mean, I can go on for hours because that's another mm-hmm. aspect of my life's work. And um, But the point being is that there's a way of hanging out together for us, for the members of our species where we can actually really um, activate and support each other's lucidity, which is super fun. It's natural. There's no technique. It's not like an instruction book. And yeah, I know everybody. You know, a lot of the people for the for years in the groups that were saying to me, "I need to, um, I need to get this down on paper." Yeah, you know, or it seems I, well, even yeah. videos of the process or something might even be a more organic way for people to tell. Yeah, well, somebody in one of the groups is a filmmaker, and she's been, actually, she's filmed some of the groups with everybody's agreement and consent, mm-hmm. and, you know, she's thinking about making a film about it, or from the funny that. point of view, it's almost like a Portlandia episode, because only in <laughs> Portland would people come together who are awakening to the dream and, and but, trip out on how we're dreaming. But not only know. in Portland, certainly the magic of these Northwest woods in Seattle, we might be a little 
little bit behind, but it's happening. But around the, all, the, the whole world, and this is the point of the thing. So I will look very much forward to that work being shared however it wants to come through. And, uh, and hopefully I'll be able to come sit in a group with you at some point. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. You know, and I'm tempted to ask this question of the one piece of advice you would give for people to clear their third eye chakra and release perceptions. But the true advice that I'll give to you is read this wonderful book, Dispelling Watiko by Paul Levy, uh, Breaking the Curse of Evil. And there's uh, two books on the way and another yeah. book in the can. And, and where can people find you online, Paul? Yeah, well, they can go to my website, which is awakenandthedream.com, and there's a ton of articles, all for free. You know, you can buy my book, um, but I'm not like I'm not like selling a lot of stuff. I just want people. To, I want to really share the information. I want people to know about it. And there's a bunch of interviews like this will be posted. Um, a bunch of other videos or audio interviews. You know, my whole point of view is I just want to get this information out because I think it's really helpful for people. It's been incredibly helpful for me. You wow. know, from the bottom of my heart, it was such a joy to um, have you respond so willingly to do this interview. <laughs> I'm sitting with someone who's been a, a deep healer for me without even meeting face to face. So wow. it's really wonderful to wow. do well, that. Well, thank and, you. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah I I'm appreciate happy. you sharing your time and your, and your wisdom with us. And I hope that uh, those of you who have been practicing with this project will check out this book. It's, uh, it's really an amazing source of wisdom and guidance to awaken in the dream so paul thank you very yeah, much totally. thank you so much awesome thank, thank you. you all for watching yeah thank you love and planets cool. all right. <laughs>